You've been quoted as saying President Trump was a vile man who hurt the U.S. more than any other leader in recent history. Accurate quote? I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, you could uh, niggle on on the margins, but he's been pretty awful to uh, U.S. national security. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Backstory. I'm Dana Lewis. On this edition, I talked to Alexander Vindman. He was the lieutenant colonel in the NSC who was on the famous call when former President Trump tried to interfere in Ukraine to force an investigation of Joe Biden. Vindman's testimony provided evidence that resulted in a charge of abuse of power in the impeachment of Trump. As you're about to hear, Vindman has a lot to say about Trump's presidency, about the insurrection, and even the recent criminal contempt charge against former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And he will tell us his view that military action with Russia attacking Ukraine seems most likely now and what Biden could have done and should do to head it off. All right, Alexander Vindman is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel who was the director of European Affairs for the United States National Security Council until he was reassigned uh, in February of 2020. And he joins me now from the U.S. Alexander, where are you, by the way? I'm still in Northern Virginia, uh, where we settled actually coming back from Moscow in 2015. You've been quoted as saying President Trump was a vile man who hurt the U.S. more than any other leader in recent history. Accurate quote? I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, you could uh, niggle on on the margins, but he's been pretty awful to uh, U.S. national security. Why would you say that? National interest. Why? Because probably no other president has gone so far to undermine the very uh, foundation of U.S. strength, which is the unity of the population. He has he has pandered to his base. He has um, spread lies about uh, pa- the pandemic about how evil uh, a one party uh, in, the, in our two party system is. He's um, went an enormous way to demonize our, uh, not uh, a large swaths of our population, as well as undermine um, our electoral system and our democracy. He's uh, pandered to uh, our adversaries and drawn false, false equivalencies between the way they operate, Vladimir Putin, uh, China, and the way this country operates. I, I have, um, I love the United States and I defend it and he attacks it. The January 6th committee, I just have to ask you because it's it's on all of the news headlines as we do this interview that they've held former chief of staff Mark Meadows in criminal contempt. I mean, what do you make of that? Is this process in Washington now investigating what many call an insurrection? Is that justice being sought or is that political retribution. You know, it's interesting that uh, as a diplomat overseas, you're you're careful to counsel other nations about uh, what could be perceived as political retribution. You want uh, the peaceful transition of power. But there's also a fundamental notion uh, that no one is above the law. Everyone is subject to the law in the United States. And uh, in order for our country to be able to uh, function properly, everybody, including the president and his um, his coterie, his proxies need to be held accountable. And that's what's going on now. I, I had this interesting conversation with uh, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger this past summer. And part of the conversation, he oh, he espoused you what I believe. You. you just you hang out with Arnold sometimes. Well, just it's it was something that made made the uh, news here in the U.S. because of a comment he made about uh, with um, you know citizenry comes responsibility. Yeah, he's made of, some amazing. Sorry to interrupt, but he's made some amazing videos about coming to the United States and the values of America. And I mean, he's that's he, how we connect. You know, he's 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 got a big check. Uh, next to his name in my book, I think he's made some incredible. That's how, you know, that's how we connected actually through uh, my board position on the Renew Democracy Initiative. So he espoused, uh, you know, this is he made some beautiful videos about his love of country. I completely agree with that, and he was an extremely strong proponent of uh, the fact that this country is stronger when we're when we're together. And my point, my counterpoint was that's very true. I also believe in the same kind of notion that you you have about the uniqueness, the exceptionalism of the United States. But we are also in this moment where accountability is important. We have an open wound uh, from four years of, of uh, Trump administration that was in, immensely corrupt, that sought to advance uh, President Trump's interests, unilateral interests, as opposed to national interests. And there has to be accountability. Otherwise, the next time we face a similar threat from a more competent president, uh, we will be, you know, we will be in in more dire straits. I think more dire straits are ahead, frankly, because this doesn't appear to be a, a reconciliation moment. But you were the whistleblower on Trump's call to Ukraine's President Zelensky. Were you actually on the phone line? Yes. And even the the, the idea of whistleblower is kind of a, maybe a little bit of a stretch. I reported through uh, proper channels in, internal to the uh, to the. White House, as opposed to what most people identify whistleblowers as doing is, you know, going outside of proper channels and going to like a press and so forth. But yes, that's that's right. So why did you do it then? Sure. So uh, what what I saw unfolding was a slow moving train wreck that maybe in certain ways I was late to recognize. I certainly in in uh, by somewhere along the, the six month kind of uh, process. I recognized that it was the president seeking to um, to better position himself for a 2022 election campaign and uh, and attack his uh, his principal rival. He himself identified uh, Vice President Biden, now President Biden, as his principal rival. So but at that, the time, did that really jump out at you, at you then? I mean, you're a lieutenant colonel. You're a pretty smart guy, but you, you were on the call to do what? And suddenly, well, well, suddenly you were no, putting your own president for misconduct. You know, that's actually not what ended up happening. If, so what, what ended up happening is when Marie Ivanovich, the ambassador, was removed, all it seemed like was that this she was, was the being attacked. This was ambassador to Ukraine. Yeah. And it was unclear why. But that was in uh, first March and then April. By May, it became absolutely clear that, you know, Rudy Giuliani may be acting on his own in support of his client at the time, that was unclear, was was casting a shadow over our, our uh, relationship with Ukraine and uh, saying nasty things about Yovanovitch. By the time we get to late May and June and you start having specific effects on our policy, then it, that's actually when we when it became pretty troubling, when there was a hold on security assistance that emerged out of out of, uh, you know, not any anything that we really understood matter of OMB that doesn't really have a national security stake per se. They just, you know, they, they control the budget strings. And then by the time we get to um, early July, I started a process called, a, I mean, I had been running a, a 
a uh, uh, a coordination effort with the entire government for for months at that point initially to put together a plan to uh, you know help develop our strategy for Ukraine. But by the time we get to July, I I went in a different direction. I went to try to figure out what was going on, why we had all this uh, uh, all these different threads coming together that were at odds with what the rest of the interagency, all the senior le- leaders, much more senior right. than me, thought was the right thing to do with Ukraine. So on so July I mean, 10th, just to wrap, just like, just just. Yeah. Hang on this a minute. Gonna, there's a lot of people gonna, that don't follow this, right? Yeah. So essentially, I mean, the U.S. This, at that point is trying to support Ukraine that's defending right. itself from Russia and, and Russian-backed right. rebels. And suddenly, military assistance, essentially, and training is being withheld by President Trump in the White House. Well, that was actually not entirely clear either. Although, frankly, I, I had heard from uh, OMB staff that this had come from the White House or from the president's um, uh, chief of staff, I found it found it hard, kind of hard to fathom that the president was going to do that. And I actually probably, you know, didn't do myself a great deal of, of uh, help by saying, well, I need more than just a staffer's word on this. So uh, the, uh, what I ended up doing is I ran, ran this process uh, up through the deputies uh, for all the departments and agencies. Simultaneously, we had these calls coming together and these meetings with the, the Ukrainians. And on the July 10th, two weeks before, when the Ukrainian National Security uh, Advisor was in town, one of um, President Trump's close politicals, uh, Gordon Sondland, proposed this this uh, quid pro quo, as, as it's known, a uh, investigation to the Bidens in, in return for a White House visit, and then kind of normalization of relations, including lifting the hold. And that he said, you know, that this was troubling because this directly implicated uh, uh, the upcoming election. So that was the first time I reported something. But at the time, was I that, said it was, was that was that a oh my god moment? But suspicions over months was realized by a clear declaration that if you don't do us a Trump, do the Trump White House a political favor here, we're not going to supply weapons in in the national security interests of America. Sure, that's ex- well. So that's exactly how I treated it, and I went to talk to the senior. Uh, officials in the uh, senior, senior legal officials. This simultaneously turned out that Fiona Hill, my boss, had a conversation with uh, John Bolton, the, uh, the president's national security advisor. And that's the one where he called it this whole thing a, a, um, um, a drug deal, the famous drug deal line. And then really, by the time we get to the 25th, the only piece that was missing was whether President Trump was behind this or whether people were acting on his behalf, trying to ingratiate themselves. And the president went on the record and said, you know, he wanted a favor from the Ukrainians uh, an investigation. And I did. I followed through on like what I did before my you know, principled position about nobody being above the law. The president, uh, you know, trying to undermine what he had himself indicated was his policy when he signed the national security strategy a couple of years before that, you know, laid out a, a way of thinking about these, these issues that we were operating within the context of. And then, uh, you know, doing this to undermine election. So all this was pretty, pretty um, disturbing. So anything seemed to go under Trump. I mean, and um, you know, no red lines, no ethical red lines, and then maybe no legal red lines either. I mean, it, it is a presidency like no other, would you say? I think that's right. I mean, I was just thinking this morning, actually, about like, you know, Richard Nixon, who? 
in terms of he, he pales in comparison to in certain regards. It's pretty pretty uh, vile attack on the on our democracy by spying on on on, on opposition party. But that's not where um, Donald Trump's kind of um, aims end. He's willing to undermine the this nation. He's willing to drive a hyper partisanship uh, that is tearing this country apart because he sees profit in it. I'm not even sure if he sees a second term. He sees profit in it. He could raise money off of it. And that to me is 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 vile, as you pointed out. So the January 6th committee, these revelations that Mark Meadows is getting the texts from, among others, Donald Trump Jr., from hosts at Fox News saying, look, that riot, I mean, you got to call it off. And he seems to stand back and watching and watch it unfold with some glee. Uh, that's pretty pretty horrific implication of, of the American president. All right. Well, so he, uh, you know, he's been described by his uh, niece as a narcissist and uh, you know, um, uh, sociopath. So in that kind of context, it kind of makes sense. He's only concerned about his own interests, not about the interests of the country and what the, the implications are that our capital was attacked. Uh, you know, and that's unfortunately who we elected once to president uh, and still has a, a decent following, I would say. I guess Fox News wasn't a big fan of yours. I mean, I suppose they haven't been doing lengthy interviews with you. I, I, I guess not. I, I mean, they seem to be afraid to ask the hard questions that you're are willing to do. So what do you make of the fact they're on there texting the president about his legacy and how they should behave? And would, would you I would expect that in. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe as well. Yeah. I would expect that in Russia, and I would expect it maybe in Ukraine and elsewhere. Yeah. I, I wouldn't expect it in one of the greatest democracies. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. This there's a to, to in setting aside like the broader conversation about a freedom of speech, uh, and I believe in in freedom of speech. Uh, there is a pernicious threat coming from a um, major news platform that is willing to say and do anything. Uh, completely unaccountable, at odds with the facts, and we have a narrative that is so destructive. I think, uh, you know, in order for for uh, President Trump to even get purchased with his ideas, he needed the ripe environment established by Fox News. And that's what's so harmful. That's why I think, you know, I wrote a piece for Lawfare back in March of this year, I want to say, about litigation to pin back um, the, these most egregious uh, efforts by Fox News, uh, you, you hit them in, the, in their a pocketbook when they lie. And just the not enough people, because they're so large, not enough people are, are willing to hold them accountable. But that's exactly what's required. Let's talk about Ukraine for a minute before I run out of time with you. Yeah. How would you assess what's going on right now uh, with Russian troops, you know, more than 100,000 of them uh, on the on the border while President Putin denies that there's any kind of invasion planned? And that's what he denied in 2014 when they went into Crimea. How serious do you think the situation is and and how should we be responding to it? This is a very dangerous moment. Uh, I think it's a coin flip on whether this becomes the largest military offensive in Europe since World War II. Uh, I am actually leaning towards the fact that the only way this does get resolved is with uh, some sort of military confrontation. And that's because uh, Putin himself has also acted with impunity. The West has not countered 
uh, a lot of his malign action and his um, uh, use of the military as an instrument to achieve his political objectives. And now he thinks he could do the same. He perceives uh, opportunity in a fractured West. I think I mentioned on one of the the programs that if we didn't have an insurrection in January, I don't think uh, Putin would be considering this operation that he's he's getting ready to execute. Uh, I think he sees weakness internally in the U.S., distraction with a hyper-focus on China, seems between the U.S. and and, uh, our European allies, and then a deep uh, need to act because he sees Ukraine slipping through his fingers. So it's the need and the opportunity that's driving this. And diplomacy is unlikely to resolve this because even if he's- Then then you're saying that President Biden failed in his phone call, in his video call with President Putin, because if you are leaning towards this is going to result in military confrontation, then President Biden's threats of, you know, nuclear style economic sanctions, then just didn't cross the line. I I actually wrote a piece on this for New York Times. I think the call went, the call- and that day, as a, as a kind of a, a point in time, went textbook. But then the next day, you had uh, um, you had a gaffe by uh, President Biden in which he basically indicated that U.S. interests ended at NATO's borders. He didn't say that our legal obligations end at NATO's borders. He said our interests and our values end. And that's a, a, not a very good message to send to, to, to uh, President Putin. I think what was what is going to be required and we've had some kind of uh, progress. It's, it's been iterative. It's been inconsistent. The G7 statement from the foreign ministers has is, is been solid piece of work, but it's, we need to be more consistent. We need to be more synchronized. And the things that I think at minimum, there's more, but the things that are going to be important are, are that, you know, sanctions, significant sanctions, impactful sanctions. I think we need to consi- uh, reassure our allies that NATO, uh, NATO Article 5 holds, and that means posture changes in Europe. We probably need an out-of-cycle deployment, a large one, to Europe to indicate that this is what's going to happen if Russia invades. You, uh, the U.S. is going to have to, you know, surge back forces to Europe. We need to arm the Ukrainians because although that's not going to be definitive, those tactical capabilities are not going to be definitive in changing uh, the strategic uh, uh, perspectives or the strategic um, calculus of, of Putin. That's going to be is still going to be important in, ter- in terms of changing the kind of the, some of the military calculus. So that's no air defense. That's no, sympathy, armor, no sympathy. No sympathy. No. No. No sympathy with President Putin when he says, "Give us guarantees that NATO expansion ends, and and then there is no military confrontation." I don't think it's about NATO expansion. I don't. I think it's about Ukraine. NATO expansion is a. Uh, NATO expansion is a factor in in maybe some small way, and I think it's a secondary objective that he he probably can do. Maybe uh, uh, these, these negotiations could be an off ramp and face saving measure. I talked about the pressure track. I mean, all the stuff that I laid out in the in the previous uh, uh, my previous point is is one side of the equation. The other one is engagement. We do need to engage about mutual security concerns, mutual security risks. They're not unilateral. They're not Russia's concerns about NATO expansion. It's also about the militarization of, of Russia's Western border that we need to talk about. So I think we need to have a holistic conversation and uh, sympathy. I'm not sure if I have that much sympathy for him. He's the one that has precipitated the the uh, militarization of the of, of NATO's flank. Do, by you, his military aggression. do you worry about an Article five situation where, OK, America is not going to pour troops into Ukraine and fight Russians that may push further into Ukraine, but. You have some very passionate Baltic countries, 
you know, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Poland, who may physically come to the aid yeah. of Ukraine. And suddenly, if Russia attacks them, then you do have an Article 5 situation because they're yeah. members of NATO. Well, we should, uh, the U.S. should be mindful of that. But I think, um, you know, people talk, I think, uh, about risks in terms of short-term immediate crisis risks. That's true. But we should also be a little bit more strategic in our calculation of risks. It's not just what's going on now. So there's crisis management going on now. But we also need to mitigate the medium and long-term risks. And if we back down here, all we actually do, and I back down is not the right term. If we lack resolve in defending our values and our interests in this manner here, then we're increasing the probability of a major confrontation with Russia down the road, because this is not the end of Russia's aggression. It's not going to be like, okay, we've secured our interest in Ukraine. They're going to end there. They have other aspirations. They have aspirations to for a bigger role in the international system. They have aspirations to upend the international system that hasn't served them. So all we're doing is we're 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 buying down risk now and increasing it in long term. We should be thoughtful of that, and we should be thinking about the the spectrum of risk. I know we're out of time. Last question. It's not a tough one. How's your dad? Because I watched the sixty minutes interview that he did, and he turned to yeah. you and both you and your brother, and then turned back to the camera. And he said, "I like these boys, and yeah. I, I I I like your dad." Yeah, he's he's a pretty awesome guy. Uh, you know, he's he's lived an amazing life. He's eighty nine, turning ninety next June. And, uh, you know, he's kind of been our um, in, in my book, I talk about, you know, how, how important a role he's played on on uh, my moral compass, my ethics and values and uh, what I learned from him, you know, both firsthand and kind of from the genetics of my family. Uh, he's pretty he's doing well. He's, you know, mobile out and about walking stuff like that. We're actually going to see him for New Year, New Year's here. Um, but uh, he's he's an important figure in our, our, our life. And that's why Super. I had that whole kind of line about uh, talking to him and putting his mind at ease. Alex, the, the book is called? Here, Right Matters. Awesome. It's, it's I think it's, yeah, it's right over my shoulder uh, over there in that stack. <laughs> I'll, I'll get it and I'll read it. And I hope yeah. other people do too. Alexander Vindman, great to talk to you. Great to meet you. Yeah, it was good talking to you. And I appreciate the tough questions, really. I do. Thank you, Dana. I was going easy on you. Yeah. We can make him tougher next, next time. time. Next yes. Time. Alexander Vinman wrote in his book, quote, I've come to realize that the system worked largely as it was supposed to. Good actors did their duty, obeyed their oaths, and defended the Constitution, unquote. But as we've discussed in other backstories, the bad actors are still at work in America, and the U.S. democracy still threatened by self-serving extremists in media and in politics, and those duped and misled by their misinformation. Gotta hope that there are more people like Vinman, who ultimately had to resign from a military that should have supported him more than it did. I'm Dana Lewis. Thanks for listening to Backstory. Please share this podcast, and I'll talk to you again soon.